Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm your host and captain, Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing. We're now in what we call the dog days of summer down here in the low country. Hot, sticky, kind of miserable. <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic simply won't go away. So much for the hope that it would not like nor survive hot weather. The hot weather states seem to have exploded with new cases, and those of us in the event marketing business simply don't know what's going to happen this fall. Never before in my lifetime have we needed leadership like we do today. So today's podcast, From the Bridge, is all about leadership. My guest angler is our good friend Carl Thomas, who has once again reinvented himself and is now positioning himself as a leadership expert. And he's going to share some leadership lessons from his past and his plans to launch his new leadership training company. We'll also have another rant from the soapbox and another fun place to eat on the road with Rick. So let's get to it. What about leadership? (laughs) When we need it most, we seem to have it least. Most of you know I'm a huge John Maxwell fan. For those of you who don't know of John Maxwell, He's the leading expert on the subject of leadership. John says the number one job of a leader during a crisis is to identify reality. No sugarcoating the reality, but you do have to wrap your reality with a sense of hope because a leader provides hope. John says a leader knows the way, goes the way and shows the way. And he says that leaders rarely have more than one good day at a time. (laughs) The truth is leaders get paid to do the hard things. No one needs a leader to do the easy things. Maxwell repeatedly says that anything worthwhile in life is uphill all the time. And that multiplies for leaders. Leaders add value to others. Leaders see the big picture. They connect the dots, and they see things others don't see. They seem to see around corners and know what's coming. On next week's podcast, we're going to go deeper here and talk about innovation and why some do it and some don't. But back to leadership. Leadership wants input, but has to be willing, you know, maybe even eager, to make the hard decisions. In other words, from a basketball standpoint, leaders want the ball. Anyone can make those easy decisions, but leaders make hard decisions all day, every day. Leaders are humble. Confident, yes. Arrogant, no. Leaders are authentic. Leaders are consistent. And leaders have courage. Leaders are people worth following. So here's my two questions for each of you today. Number one, who are you following? And number two, who's following you? 
My guest, Angular, is one of the most innovative people I know and a great leader. Carl Thomas has lived many lives in the event and marketing world during an amazing and multifaceted career, but he's not through yet. Let's welcome my pal, Carl Thomas, to the bridge. Good morning. I know it's a little early out there for you on the left, I mean the West Coast, Carl. Uh, Welcome to the bridge. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be with the captain, and I'm just happy to be a first mate today. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, I've told people that you've had a very interesting career, and, and I think everything that you've done is leading you to what you're going to do next, which we'll get into. But but you're one of the few people I know that, that you know, was raised in California and stayed. Um, you know, at least you're the, one of the few people that I know that uh, – that, that has any money in, at his stage. <laughs> what made you well, stay? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it really had to do with my athletic roots. Uh, when I was uh, getting ready to choose a, a college after high school, I had the good fortune to be a, a reasonably good swimmer, scholarship potential. I looked all around the country for the best swimming schools. Uh, back then, there was... Indiana University and Doc Councilman. It was Peter Dalen at USC. Uh, and there were a, a, another, a number of them, but I ended up choosing UCLA for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, it was in California and it was at the back then one of the best educations money could buy for an in-state resident to go to a University of California school. It, it was awesome. And secondly, uh, it was in Westwood. I mean, Westwood is still today uh, a, a beautiful little city, and, and back then it was just as charming. And we had formidable aquatics programs at UCLA, both swimming and water polo. So there you have it. Well, you were there when one of my heroes was there, Coach John Wooden. Did you ever cross paths with Coach Wooden during that era? A lot. He was very close with our swimming and water polo coach, Bob Horn. And while I was at UCLA, and I'll date myself here, um, Wooden's basketball teams over four years won four national championships, went 126 and four. My freshman year was uh, then Lou Alcindor, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's senior year. Then I got two years of uh, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, uh, and Steve Patterson. And then my senior year, Bill Walton came in as a freshman, and that was the first year when freshmen could actually, at the NCAA basketball level, compete uh, on the varsity squad. So not only was the, was the basketball competency above and beyond anything the country, if not the world, had ever seen, but the legendary coach was so giving of his time, and I can remember we would do chalk talks for water polo because it's not a dissimilar game. And our coach, Bob Horn, would invite Coach Wooden in on multiple occasions to sort of talk with us and motivate us and inspire us. And uh, I can't tell you how many times we we heard him uh, talk about certain elements of his pyramid of success. And that's still a document that resonates with me. And I've got a signed book by Coach Wooden. So it was it was pretty special. 
Well, he was a very special person, a very special teacher. Obviously, the coaching success goes without saying. So when you got out of UCLA, then what happened? Well, I did what most um, what most folks did back then. I, I became a waiter and a bartender because that was pretty good money, <laughs> and it allowed you to do other things. So so while I was was waiting and bartending, I mean, just a little bit more athletics, if that's all right, uh, I swam in the 72 Olympic trials, got really close uh, to making the Olympic team, missed it by less than half a second. And then focused all my energy then on water polo because I fell in love with the game. We had been NCAA champions twice at UCLA. And for the next four years, uh, I, I really uh, focused on trying to take that sort of next step in my athletic career. Uh, we, we, I did end up making the U.S. national water polo team. And by one of these ironic twists of fate, the 76 games were in Montreal Team Canada got a hall pass as the host nation. And that prior year in 75, our national team lost to Mexico in the finals of the Pan American Games in Mexico City. Uh, and, and so we, we failed to qualify uh, in, in, uh, in going to Montreal. So that was kind of the next chapter in not making the Olympic squad. Uh, and then I, I sort of cast about and applied for uh, an opening at Speedo Swimwear. The good news there is my swimming coach, uh, not at UCLA, but at Santa Clara Swim Club, the legendary George Haynes, uh, was a believer in me, and I'm super thankful for that. And he was a he highly recommended me for the Speedo Swimwear job, which I took, and I and I spent the next seven years at Speedo and rose there to the marketing vice president. And then you had a little fork in the road. I did. Uh, you know, and it sort of all circles back to my, my sporting days. One of the reasons I felt strongly that we did not qualify to go to Montreal was uh, leadership at um, the, the national water polo level. And, and sort of in that four-year period from 76 to 80, uh, I was fortunate again. I was invited to uh, be one of four athletes to go to Washington, D.C. and testify before Senator Ted Stevens because he was architecting what became the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, which fundamentally did away with the power and authority of the AAU and vested all that power and authority with the U.S. Olympic Committee which then begat what you and I know today as national governing bodies, uh, the ability of individual sports to, to manage themselves. And as I was working for Speedo and became fairly active politically uh, in, in, that, in that arena, what happened is I became a, a, you know, an athlete, a representative, and myself and a couple of other uh, water polo player athletes who were of similar mind worked with a couple of coaches that we had great respect for, and we essentially retooled the whole way that U.S. water polo was structured. We went from uh, every year assigning a, a national team coach to uh, letting four-year contracts to national team, team coaches, put training camps in place, put a pool of athletes in place that, that competed and trained over a four-year period and were selected in that process for national team, and it dramatically improved our entire our entire program. 
Well, you were an entrepreneur early at Cat Sports. I remember I was starting my career and, and had great admiration. I think that's when we first met, in fact, which dates us a long, long time ago. But t- t- talk about, you know, kind of being an entrepreneur and running your own your own shop. Well, that was that was really, really fun. And again, it, it had roots in Speedo. As the marketing VP, my job was to create demand uh, for to sell our products. And we were the leading competitive swimwear uh, brand globally. But we needed to expand that that marketing segmentation, if you will, expand the audience. And so I, among many others, read an article that Barry McDermott wrote in 79 around Iron Man. And I didn't know when I saw the title of the article that it was actually talking about triathlon because as a swimmer and a water polo player, I grew up in the lifeguarding system in Southern California and the Ironman competition I was familiar with was, was on the beach for lifeguards. Yeah. It was, you know, running and a dory and swimming and all that sort of thing. Uh, but after I read that article, I went, Holy cow, two things. One, the Ironman format is, is a, a gruel as we called it. And secondly, I, I felt there was huge pent up demand for, if you will, an every man's triathlon format that allowed weekend warriors to come in <clears throat> and actually participate in what I felt like could be a, a really great sport. And it was that vision uh, that, I, that I was fortunate, again, that my, my lead, the leadership at Speedo allowed me to go forward with it. We created the event. It was under Speedo ownership for two years, 82 and 83. And at the end of 1983, I left Speedo and negotiated with them to acquire all of the rights assets, logos, trademarks, et cetera, for what was called the U.S. Triathlon Series. And that was the first asset uh, that launched Cat Sports. And we ran Cat Sports for a dozen more years and uh, created what still today is the Olympic Triathlon format. And via Cat Sports, not only did we produce, manage, package for television and sponsorship, a national episodic series of triathlons, uh, but I was also instrumental in co-founding what is now the USA Triathlon Organization, as well as the International Triathlon Union. You know, again, we talk about leadership. You know, leadership starts with a vision. You know, you had a vision that said, you know, this can be better. <laughs> this can be different. Um, you know, the, the the disappointment of not going to the Olympics, I think – you know, fundamentally changed you and said, I don't want that to happen to somebody else. Let's, let's create fairness. Let's create opportunity. And to do that, you got to create structure. Um, and, and you did that. Um, there was another little sport you, you got involved with too. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Right. As we went through the 80s and triathlon became well, well established globally, <clears throat> we licensed the format to a few countries around the world. The first one was Japan, great supporters of ours. And then it, it you know, one thing begets the other, right? As, as triathlon became uh, not only globally recognized, but we were fortunate to, to get <clears throat> officially recognized by the IOC. That's the ITU, the International Federation, which built sort of an impenetrable fence around the ITU as the sole exclusive governing body uh, around the world for triathlon. The, the rest was just, you know, a foregone conclusion. Triathlon would become an Olympic sport, debuted in Sydney in 2000. And at, at that moment, I sort of, I pivoted a little bit. Uh, I, I sold out of 
of cat sports and became a hired gun at what then was called the AVP association of volleyball professionals. Uh, I joined that group as the head of marketing, the head of sponsorship, the head of television packaging. And I in, inherited a, a really solid foundation. But again, we were able to, to grow it substantially over the next three years. So two things happened there at the time I joined uh, the AVP, literally every single event was on some, some form of television back then, uh, Prime Ticket, which became the Fox Sports Network, ESPN, and NBC dipped their feet in the water with uh, five hours worth of taped specials. And over the next three years, we elevated the sport to what became 22 and a half hours live on the NBC network. Timing was fortuitous because NBC was the Olympic broadcaster, the Olympic Games in Atlanta First time the, the games were back on U.S. soil since 84 in L.A. And NBC, uh, to their credit, not only leveraged the beach volleyball format and sport, but also uh, beach volleyball would debut in 1996 in Atlanta as a gold medal sport. And that's when Karch Karai won his third gold medal in volleyball. So. The stars aligned on that one, Rick, and that was really fun. And then, and then, and we'll get to this, I'm sure. Uh, I got recruited um, by the the best boss I ever had to come to Universal Studios in play in a very large uh, sandbox, so to speak, in packaging corporate partnership and corporate sponsorship across three global theme park properties. But you had already done packaging. I mean, you know, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, candidly, you were in a bigger sandbox, but you had your same playbook. Well, that's exactly right. And that's why I got hired, because I understood the, the fundamentals and the mechanics of of packaging a portfolio of assets as a rights holder and understanding where the benefits and activation opportunities or leveraging opportunities stood for for potential partners. And the interesting thing, Rick, and you know this, the theory about less is more is absolutely true. In this particular case, I inherited uh, 32 sponsors uh, across wildly diverse categories of sponsorship. And over the five plus years I was at Universal, we cut the number of sponsors in half and nearly tripled the revenues and the benefits to the to the company. You know, I was uh, listening to my um, my business partner Mike Malay the other day on a podcast that his son David does for us called Flip the Switch, and Mike was talking about the the real genesis of the Disney and now ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex was the fact that Disney had lost teenagers. And he, he acknowledged, and we had lost most of the teenagers to Universal. That's <laughs> that, right. <laughs> that, that, that Universal, by design, said, wait a minute, there's a whole segment of older kids that, that Disney just n- was not reaching. And, and I think, y- you know, you were a big part of that and that the, the leadership there was a big part of that uh, transition. Well, it, that's absolutely right. I mean, Universal was very focused. Uh, it, it, you know, nothing makes you better and more focused and more or more agile than a formidable competitor. And Disney then, as now, 
is still the global leader in in branding, in theme parks, in intellectual property, and the way they leverage those uh, across all of their uh, segments, right? But at Universal, we we recognize that the edginess, the adrenaline of of the younger emerging adult demographic wasn't going to ride the teacup ride at at Disneyland, right? I mean, you know, it's a small, small world is great when you are eight, but when you're 18, not so much. So we came up with things like, you know, Spielberg's shark ride and Jurassic Park, the ride and, uh, you know, back to the future. Uh, and, and one of the great things about universal is the longstanding relationship that Wasserman Scheinberg, uh, who were the, the, patriarchs back then had with this up and coming film director named Steven Spielberg. And so brilliantly what they did is they, is they did a contract with Spielberg and, and essentially he became a partner of the universal theme park properties worldwide. And where we could, we used Spielberg's not only directorial capabilities because he was brilliant but also the properties that he brought to the big screen and, you know, call it, call it Jurassic Park. And when, and when that ride was ultimately completed and started to attract guests and, and serve our community, back then that ride was about $120 million capital expense. And at the time we had, oh, geez, Rick, maybe $4 billion plus worth of projects underway across the world it was just such a fun time to be there but but we had the right formula we had our version of the secret sauce and we competed hammer and tong with disney and got our share yeah you did a great job there and then you pivot again then you go into the tickets business <laughs> well with, with tickets.com yeah, yeah right right well that's that's not far afield because you know one of the things that theme parks have to do is sell tickets every day uh, and, and so it wasn't a foreign bit of territory, but it was it, it was u- uniquely different. Uh, and again, this is when I got recruited and hired by Ron Benzian, who was the best boss I ever had. And he hired me twice, firstly at Universal. And then he took the CEO role at Tickets.com and hired me again. And I came in there as his chief revenue officer, as well as the chief marketing officer. And that really was it was an interesting interesting time because it essentially was a turnaround. We, we came out of the dot com bubble. Uh, at one point, the market cap or the market valuation of tickets dot com was close to a billion dollars, eight hundred million or so. When we joined the company as the next management team, the uh, we we, were, we actually were publicly traded on the Nasdaq. We were in the about buck buck fifty range per share, which had a which had us well under a hundred million dollars in, in market cap. And then over that three and a half years, we essentially were in a turnaround environment. We had uh, acquired prior to me getting there, prior to Ron getting there, we'd acquired 11 different small local regional ticketing companies, if you will. We rolled them all up into a single company, but the challenge was through any merger and acquisition strategy, the culture of the acquired companies is so important. Culture across the board as a leadership tenant is critically important. And we faced 
diverse cultures. Some some of these local companies did business the way they always had, and, and while they were happy to take the money from the from the acquisition, they didn't change their behavior. So that was a very significant challenge for us to to sort of change the culture. We also inherited eleven different ticketing platforms, eleven different products, if you will. Part of my job was to help uh, our management team identify the, the the right market segmentation, the right market segment for the right platform, if you will. So over that three year period, we reduced eleven different ticketing offerings down to a core five. And that was critical. Again, that less is more theory, but those five ticketing platforms, all built on the same software, allowed us to uh, approach not only the small mom and pop clubs, one to 200, maybe 300 capacity, all the way to the carrier dome at Syracuse, the Boston Red Sox, the San Francisco Giants, the Chicago Cubs. So we, we did all of that and everything in between, and it set the stage for what became, uh, you know, the, the number two company in the whole ticketing space. And, and, and we then got acquired by Major League Baseball Advanced Media, which is the tech arm of Major League Baseball. And that was quite interesting as well, because we had 15 Major League Baseball uh, teams as clients at Tickets.com. But what Major League Baseball recognized and understood is that Tickets.com had the most agile and the fastest, the deepest, widest, best internet ticketing technology. And that that was across the board. Uh, and it was in the face of Ticketmaster, who was the you know 8,000-pound gorilla in the jungle. So we did a really good job of staying very focused. Uh, and that led to uh, an acquisition and, a, and an exit. Well, it's interesting. I think y'all, y'all were the first to do secondary ticketing uh, on the same portal as primary ticketing. Um, we and, were. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was a, uh, that was a very strategic and at the same time, a very risky decision because the secondary market, you and I grew up, it was called the scalper market. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and in many municipalities, not, not to mention, you know, in some States scalping above the face value of the ticket was against the law. And it was only a matter of time before those ordinances changed, because in some markets you could buy a ticket for 50 and sell it for 200 if the market was there. In, in, in other localities, you, you, you know, sort of did that trade around the corner and out of sight, because practically speaking, it was against the law. So when we decided to offer those secondary tickets on on our platform and we did that via our internet platform in some in some markets it was perfectly access, acceptable california being one the san francisco giants were our um client and we built uh, a a pod if you will a feature slash functionality set inside our software that we branded double play for the giants kind of kind of catchy and what that allowed was for season ticket holders to put their tickets that they weren't going to use on the double play platform, offer them up for sale. And anybody then who went to the Giants website could acquire or buy those tickets that were offered up through the double play window. 
it was very it was very cutting edge. It was very brilliant. We got some pushback from major baseball, <clears throat> but the Giants at the time were very competitive uh, at the World Series level. And I want to say the Giants won three out of five World Series in those in the early part of the 2000s. So once that happened, then you know companies like StubHub. Uh, tickets now sort of emerged from the woodwork, but we led the charge uh, as the primary ticketing platform that that encouraged the the secondary ticketing market to become what it is today. Well, again, same theme: leadership, leadership, leadership. Being the market leader, t- taking a risk, doing some things. I've told this story on this podcast before, but I think I was about eight years old, and my dad was a big Georgia Tech fan, and. Georgia Tech was nationally ranked against Tennessee, and they were going to play a game at Grant Field in Atlanta. He said, let's go down there and we'll get a ticket. We'll we'll buy a ticket from a scalper. And my dad was a federal investigator. And and, and so we, we waited and waited and waited and waited. And right before kickoff, he, he found a guy, and, and the guy said, I, I got two on the 50-yard line. And he said, well, my dad said, well, how much are those tickets? Well, this is time that face value was $5. And the guy said, they're $50 a piece. And, of course, my dad reached in his wallet, and he opened up his wallet, and the first thing he sees is that big badge. <laughs> and, he said right. to, and he said to the guy, how much did you say again? And the guy just bit his tongue and said, their face value. <laughs> and so right. we ended up <laughs> spending 10 bucks instead of 100 bucks <laughs> to sit on the 50-yard line. That was my uh, – Favorite scalper, Tory. After you left tickets and after they were acquired, you did some some venture capital stuff. But then you got, again, back into an innovative business with a company called Hook It. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, Hook It was, is um, a, a, really, a really interesting and a very disruptive company. So you and I, back in the day, grew up with Nielsen as the leading company globally that sort of set the buy-sell market for advertising. The flow-through there was they also established via their ratings system on television what the benefits were to sponsors whose brand or logo or icon was depicted on television for you know a number of seconds or minutes over the course of a broadcast that had value and that's really what drove sponsorship sales uh, for a lot of those years. And you know this, Rick. I mean, when you're on television, you, you got a big platform to speak to. That's what drove the AVP. That's one of the things that drove the U.S. Triathlon Series. Uh, and it certainly uh, drove uh, sponsorship valuations through the first decade of the 2000s. We're now into the second one. And with the emergence of digital platforms – over the past dozen years, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram, that combined with over-the-top television, uh, rights holders, teams, leagues, federations, uh, investing in their own uh, television platforms, now today called the streaming business. And you don't need to look very far to recognize that the whole digital social media universe is dramatically expanding in terms of engagement, audience, and interaction with uh, starting with the athletes right on up through leagues, teams, federations, standalone events. And the brands that fuel all of those categories uh, 
called sponsors or or partners are 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 recognizing i think more than ever before the value of the digital and social media platform so here's simply what hook it does and we've described it this way for the better part of eight years uh hook it is where nielsen and facebook meet so what hook its platform does is it measures engagement not reach and not impressions but actual engagement via social and digital media platforms and through their deep algorithms, otherwise known as a math equation, come up with actual earned media values in the currency du jour, whether that's US dollars, British pounds, euros, or, or what have you. And we uh, positioned that really effectively. We, the three years I was there, I, I drove sales increases close to 400%. Opened Europe. We did strategic partnerships with uh, WPP that led to relationships with UEFA in Europe, McLaren, Formula One, the European Golf Tour, Liverpool. And then on the brand side, uh, we were in discussions and then subsequently closed uh, client relationships with the likes of Rolex and Audi, Allianz, HSBC. So major sponsors, not only in Europe, but obviously those here in the U.S. from New Balance and, and Vans to, to Nike. Uh, so the, the platform spoke for itself. It, it, it has, you know, a deep database and then the middleware that surfaces up a very, uh, what I will call elegant user interface to our clients with a dashboard. They can... Uh, dive into literally any individual post uh, and and understand what the engagement was around that post. And let's just be clear, engagement takes the form of a like, a comment, a share, a video view, or a retweet or a repost. And I always use the example of Lindsay Vaughn, the U.S. ski team was our client. <clears throat> and in Pyeongchang, when she, when she surprised really the world and won the bronze medal, she posted uh, – you know, her photo and the metal and all of that across the three primary platforms. She tweeted it. She put it on Facebook. She put it on Instagram. And at the time, she had an aggregate 4 million followers. So once those posts go out, if, if you are a, a follower of Lindsay on Facebook and it comes across your feed and you simply look at it and go, you know, that's really cool. And then you go on to the next thing and you don't interact with that post. You don't count, even though you saw it, unless you engaged with it, it with a like or a comment or a share. As far as we hook it platform is concerned, it doesn't count it, because we all learned that while Nielsen is still the most trusted measurement platform in sport and media. They can't tell you how many people are in the room. They can't tell you if they're actually even paying attention to what's on television, but they count those as viewership. And, and so it, it's a little bit, you know, who is that man behind the curtain? Not so with Hook It. Hook It is 100% verifiably accurate. You might take issue with with the methodology on how on how Hook it arrives at an actual earned media dollar value, but you cannot take issue with the fact that 
the entire engagement platform is right there to be seen right down to the single like. Well, you, you've had an amazing and, and truly innovative uh, career, but, but in the few minutes we have left, you, you're now starting a new journey. You're taking all of this leadership wisdom uh, that you've gathered through a number of different um, and uniquely different um, entities, and you're now going to talk about how to help people learn about leadership. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, why leadership for you? And secondly, what do you think are the keys to leadership? Right. Why, why leadership for me is, is when I sort of looked around at, at a very diverse career, as I know you have had, Rick, we both have uh Walls full of business cards. Um, yeah, I, my my deal was way. I couldn't keep a job, but uh, never. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, or or you chose to move on. Uh, so leadership for me re- really goes all the way back to the, the, some of the earlier times we spoke of that vision and the focus. And so as I sort of started to think this through, I began. I, I, I listen. I'm I'm as you are. Uh, a public speaker. I love doing it. I love to share the the wisdom uh, in assuming we've got some nuggets of wisdom out there. Hopefully people can learn. I've, I've been a business mentor here in San Diego for the better part of 10 years, and I've watched a number of, of emerging companies come in, and they have really good ideas. They have really good vision, but then <clears throat> they don't have the skill set or the experience to really understand how to position a product or a service how to take it to market, how to execute against the, the, that vision. So that, so that turns back around into things like focus uh, and, and sort of standing as, as a pillar of truth and trust, not only with your employees, but with your customers or, or your clients. Uh, so all of those things are, are really important from a leadership perspective. I, I think a couple of things there, vision, focus, uh, the ability to see around corners, which I think comes out of vision. If you have a clear vision, you can sort of connect dots that others might not connect. You can see downstream a ways that others might not. Uh, and, you know, through all of this, the, the leadership thing sort of came home to me <clears throat> as follows. I was, I was looking at the best way to sort of position myself and take that, that wealth of experience I, I was fortunate to gain, along with the mentoring I've done over the past dozen or so years, and be able to focus that into an effective public speaking or keynote speaking platform. So I worked with a little agency here in town and we did the resume crawl and all that. And finally they go, well, what's the, what's the secret sauce for you? And I talked about vision and I talked about seeing around corners and I said, well, let's do something really simple. Let me give you about 10 names of folks that um, have worked for me that I hired or that I inherited who I think a lot of, and you talk to all of them and see what they have to say. <clears throat> so they did that exercise and then I was up with that three or four week period, called me back and said, you know, that was really helpful. About six of those folks that you suggested we speak with all told us you were the best boss they ever had. Uh, well, whoa, 
that's pretty interesting and and it's daunting right i mean <clears throat> you, you everybody who's in a leadership position wants to be the best boss um but doing it is way more art than science so those <clears throat> basic tenets of of leadership um the one thing i haven't mentioned which i believe are, are two things really super important one <clears throat> the culture of the company or organization that you are in or that you are leading is paramount because culture starts at the top. Uh, and, and also my philosophy as a, as a leader was always, I wanted to get the most out of the people that worked with me or for me, uh, that I could possibly, that I could possibly get. So, you know, walking around, popping into offices, what's the problem you're facing today? How can we, how can we help each other? Um, <clears throat> execute against the, the vision and the mission and do it in the most efficient, in the most efficient way. So the, the whole essence of the value of people in an organization is, is really, is really important. And I think, I think it's, it's so, it's so well said um, by a gent named Bill Campbell, who was a football coach. He wrote a book called the trillion dollar coach which for the audience here, anyone who's interested in leadership should, should get this. It's a great read. Um, <clears throat> but his quote goes like this, believe in people more than they believe them in themselves and push them to be more courageous. And then they will accomplish things they never thought they could. And they will serve your organization at a level that it is way beyond what what might otherwise have been the case and there are five basic tenets that every employee every person on the planet has and these tenets are all innate and they can't be taught they can be enhanced but but it's really simple i use the acronym cadet the c stands for character the a stands for attitude d for drive E for energy and T for talent. We're all blessed with a certain uh, uh, benefit, if you will, of each of those. I, I can't tell Rick Jones how to wake up in the morning and have a great attitude. I know he does because I know the man. <clears throat> but that 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 attitude and that that sort of self integrity character, right? So if you're going to be the best boss ever, you better start with being the best boss of yourself. You know, Bill Campbell, a lot of people don't know about him, but not only was he a great football coach, he, he was kind of the guru of Silicon Valley. And, and now the National Football Foundation gives the Campbell Trophy every year to the student athlete that, that best combines, uh, you know, intellect. Uh, community service, uh, <laughs> academics, uh, and 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 uh, athletic stuff. You know, it's interesting that you know Campbell's basis for everything was as a football coach. First thing you realize as a coach, and I, I think you saw this when you played water polo. As a coach, you can't play. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, so you better get players, and and you better be able to get them to play together. And and I, I think this idea of of your new podcast, the best boss ever is really unique. Um, you're going to make its debut this week. Um, uh, tell us about where our listeners can find the best boss ever. 
Thebestbossever.com is the website. Thank you for that, Rick. Uh, when we launch the podcast series, and we'll do it on a weekly basis, it will be available via all of the of the well-known podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, uh, across the board. It will also obviously be available on social media, uh, CT, those are my initials, CT Best Boss Ever on Instagram, uh, CT Best Boss Ever uh, on Twitter. Uh, the, the, the Facebook, if you just, you know, put into your Facebook page, the Best Boss Ever will pop up there. Uh, and it's really going to be interesting because what we're going to explore every week is <clears throat> not only what what are the elements of leadership and, and what it takes to be a really good boss, it, 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 but, but we're also going to look at, if you will, the flip side of that coin because as, <clears throat> as we're talking about this – the you, worst boss ever. <laughs> exactly. Because all the, when, when you initially, I get 30 seconds into saying, <clears throat> yeah, we're going to talk about the best boss ever. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the best boss I ever had. Immediately, the audience does two things. When they go, I, I know this story. I know who the best boss I ever had was. But I also know who the worst boss I ever had was and why. So th that those learnings, I think, are going to be really interesting. We've got a hugely diverse lineup of guests, uh, and I'm so looking forward to this because it's it's one of those things that um, uh, not only resonates close with me because I've got personal experience in this way on on all sides of that question, as we just discussed, <clears throat> but I think everybody who we we will interview has those same experiences, and and ultimately the wisdom. Uh, based on those experiences is, is going to be super helpful to the audience. Because listen, there are a zillion books on leadership and a lot of them are written by folks from an academic perspective that never really actually worked in the trenches that had a horrible boss and understood what that means, <clears throat> let alone having the very best boss they ever had. So those kind of things that come from an experiential perspective are hugely important and I think have gravitas because they actually happened. Well, we're looking forward to listening to it. We've talked a lot today on our show about leadership. You're a great leader um, and we'll be uh, checking in with you every week uh, to listen in to who you're talking to. And I want to thank you for sharing with us today from the bridge. My pleasure, Rick. Always glad to be the first Nader Rick. Thanks, pal. Let's get back up on the old soapbox. We've been talking all about leadership today. So what's happened to the servant leader? We recently talked about the movie White Christmas. In that movie, the commanding officer, General Waverly, was known as a servant leader. The, the lead character, Bean Crosby, said, we ate and then he ate. We slept and then he slept. The Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, what's that all about? Simply servant leadership. I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of the lack of political leadership on both sides of the aisle. The real issue is they seem to have forgotten they work for us, the American taxpayer. You know, they have a better health care system than us. They have a better retirement program than us. 
And I don't remember any of them taking any pay cuts like most of us have done during this pandemic. But in the words of Jimmy Buffett, it's our own damn fault for putting up with them. Leaders put people first, period. People, not party. They don't seem to get that. So I have an idea for this November for all my Republican and Democratic friends out there. Let's vote them all out. The next batch cannot be any worse than this batch. And that's my soapbox. We'll close today near a place where they really build leaders. And that place is West Point, New York, home of the U.S. Military Academy. Just walk the grounds at West Point and notice the buildings named for great American leaders that attended or taught or coached at Army. My dear friend Bill Battle, the founder and CEO of the Collegiate Licensing Company, actually started his college football coaching career at Army under the legendary Paul Dietzel. That staff also included Bill Parcells of the New York Giants fame. When you go visit West Point, you want to stay at the Bear Mountain Inn. And when you're staying there, you want to eat at their 1915 restaurant, which was named for the year that the inn was actually built. The restaurant has beautiful ambience, old wood, high ceilings, a huge fireplace, and views of the lake everywhere. They have lots of great food, but I love their appetizers the best and can make a meal out of just a selection of those apps. Things like fried calamari or seared scallops, homemade soups and short ribs. But the best of all is the amazing lobster and artichokes baked dipped. I mean, it's got melted cheese, lobster and artichokes. What's better than that? If you've not been to West Point to the U.S. Military Academy, put it on your bucket list. And remember to stay and eat at the Bear Mountain Inn on the road with Rick. That's our show for today. Thanks to my special guest, Carl Thomas, and for you, for listening to From the Bridge. We'll see you again soon.